This is an ABC podcast. Millie Formby is making her way around Australia in the air. She's flying a microlight glider that she built herself. It's basically a bike with a sail and an engine attached. And flying in this microlight aircraft is Millie's best effort at mimicking the extraordinary feats of migratory shorebirds. These are birds that fly thousands of kilometres non-stop around the world, and some of which are just the size of a Tim Tam. In following the path of these shorebirds, Millie has flown above great pods of whales making their own seasonal journeys and alongside pelicans and curious wedgetail eagles. Millie is a zoologist, but she first became obsessed with shorebirds after working on a tapestry. Hi, Millie. Hi, Sarah. Really, your story has it all. It's got birds, it's got (laughs) self-built aircraft, it's got weaving. It does, all of the things, (laughs) yeah. Well, let's start with with your own beginnings with birds. What Mm. birds were around you when you were growing up? What do you remember? Yeah, well, I grew up in Gippsland in Victoria and uh, we were on the outside of uh, the town of Druin in a farming area. we I didn't grow up on a farm, but we were near farms, so there were a lot of birds around. And uh, one of my first birding experiences was with my mum. We had uh, a pair of gangang cockatoos come and visit the pencil pines in our front yard, and uh, mum bought a copy of What Bird Is That? And we sat down and identified them together, and I just thought that was the best thing ever. What did you think was so good about it? What, being able to name what was around you? Yes, that was a big part of it. That there was a book that actually had all these birds in it, you know, and I could look them up and find out for myself what they actually were. Yeah. And gangangs are those black cockatoos, aren't they? Yeah, they're a small black cockatoo and uh, with, the males have a red head. Yeah, very beautiful. And so was the idea of studying animals, of, of knowing more about them, something that you always imagined would be part of your future? Or uh, I was always obsessed with animals as a kid. I was always running around, you know, in the garden trying to find things and uh, drawing pictures of them as well. And I remember when I was seven asking my sister what someone who studies animals is called and she told me it was a zoologist. And I was like, well, I am going to be a zoologist when I grow up. I remember saying that. Yeah. I'm impressed with your sister just knowing yeah. that. Bit of vocab very as well. Yeah. <laughs> So how is it that you ended up studying art first off? Well, as I said, you know, I always loved drawing animals as a kid as well. And I uh, loved cartoons and animation. I still do. And uh, I was thinking I wanted to be an animator. And uh, so I went down the path of doing an illustration course. And uh, later I did visual arts and majored in tapestry. So that was my first avenue. I don't think I've ever met anyone who has majored in tapestry. (laughs) Yeah, there's a few of us. We're a small group. Yeah. What was it that that excited you about tapestry? I I think I'm a very tactile person. I love fibre arts and uh, I learnt to knit and crochet off my mum growing up and uh, she's also a very accomplished seamstress. She used to design and make her own clothes and uh, made a lot of my clothes when I was growing up. Did you appreciate that at the time? I think I took it for granted. You do as a kid, don't you? Just like I am, mum makes things. But it was something new to me. I'm often very curious. I find something new. I've never done that before. I want to go explore it. 
part of my problem is I, I wanted to do too many things. <laughs> and when I was at uni, yeah, I did tapestry as an elective and I really loved it. And uh, yeah, so I ended up making that my major. And then you actually started working professionally as a weaver. How mm-hmm. common is that? How many people are involved in this kind of work in Australia? Yeah, it's a very small community. There's not that many of us. So the Australian Tapestry Workshop is where I worked at for seven and a half years. And uh, how many of us were there? There may be about uh, 15 to 20 of us working there. It varies because uh, how many employees they have at the workshop usually it depends on how many tapestries they have on the loom. So they'll bring more people in if there's a lot of commissions and they need to get things finished or if there's a larger tapestry they need more people to work on. And are you using machines at all, Lily? No, it's all by hand. So the it's traditional tapestry weaving. So some people think of tapestry as being a needlepoint that you sit down and you put the colours in, you know, you follow the colour areas. That's not it. So a tapestry loom is a vertical loom. With It has a roller at the bottom and a roller at the top and you have the vertical cotton warp threads. And uh, we use what's called a non-continuous weft method. So the weft is the horizontal wool or linen or whatever you, you're using to create the image. Uh, you don't go across all of the warps all at once and all the way back. You can actually build up and create shapes just going across a few warps at a time. And the real skill for us as weavers, uh, because we'd be interpreting other artists' work into large-scale tapestries, our job was uh, really to match the colours by eye. So we could have a bobbin, which was, you know, the wooden bobbins with a brass tip. That's what you would put your weft onto. And depending on how coarse the warp was or how close together those warps were, you could have anything from like three up to 12 or 13 uh, strands of wool on in, wow. in, in that bobbin. And, and it, that's to create the different colours. That's right. It? So you had to choose which colours you wanted to mix together in those threads to then uh, weave together to create the colour. So would there be many weavers working sort of side by side on the, on the one tapestry at yes. once? Yes, that's right. So uh, I think the largest one I worked on was an artwork by John Catapan for Xavier College and it was about eight metres long and two metres high. I think there was five or six of us working on that all together. And, you know, you're working on, on a tapestry like that for months at a time. So I think that one took us maybe eight months or something. So you, you get to know your colleagues really <laughs> do, well. Do you chat? or oh, is... All the time. Yeah, we sit and we chat and we talk about life and Make jokes and, yeah, you get to know people really well. And are you competitive, like some of you trying to weave faster than the person next to you? Oh, I don't think I ever had that so much. (laughs) But, um, yeah, we'd certainly have targets and goals that we needed to meet each week for budget. One of the differences, uh, I guess, from creating a painting is is that you're watching it emerge inch Mm -hmm. by inch rather than being able to work across an artwork at a time. Are you trying to conceive of what it's going to look like eventually mentally as as you're doing it? I mean, what's what's the process between working in a small little bit of the tapestry and holding that whole image in your head? Yeah, so on a a project you would have a leader and that was really their role was to come up with a overall vision, I suppose, of how the tapestry was going to be woven at the start. And uh, we'd work together as a team to come up with a colour palette so that everybody was on the same page. So, you know, the bit of the tapestry on the left looked the same as the tapestry on the right because you had different people working on it together. 
And yeah. if you make a mistake, can you? Is it like knitting? Can you kind of go backwards? Yeah, you can take it out, but uh, you do work from the bottom to the top. Sometimes we'll weave them on their side, but uh, most of the time they're woven bottom to top. And where? What sort of places would these these really big tapestries end up? Where would they find homes? Oh, well, sometimes they'd be private commissions for people in their own homes uh, and others are in very famous places like the Sydney Opera House. There's a beautiful tapestry that was uh, designed by Jorn Utzen who designed the Opera House that was woven at the workshop. Uh, as I mentioned before, Xavier College, a lot of the Australian embassies around the world have uh, tapestries in them designed by uh, Aboriginal artists from around Australia. So all sorts of places. What do you think is different about having a tapestry in a, in a space mm-hmm. like that rather than a painting? Well, uh, as I mentioned before, it's a, it's a tactile experience. Uh, it does create a different feeling of warmth. And uh, I mean, that's why tapestries were used in castles and things like that. And in uh, medieval times, you know, when the tradition of tapestry first began was uh, to also uh, has sound properties as well with uh, dampening down echoes and things like that. But for me, you know, there's a richness of colour in a tapestry that you don't get in a painting because your eye is doing the mixing of colour. So it very much uh, preserves that uh, luminous quality, I suppose, of the colour. Is it quite physical work? Yeah, it is. So uh, the reason I'm not a tapestry weaver today is because I got a repetitive strain injury. So one of the things when you're weaving, as you put the weft in, uh, you need to tamp the weft down with a bobbin, so you're tapping it, tapping, tapping, tapping all day. And uh, that repetitive action, I got an injury in my right shoulder and I was on work cover for about six months and I went, oh, I can't, I can't be a tapestry weaver full time for the rest of my life. So I decided to go back to uni and uh, the only other thing I'd ever wanted to be was a zoologist. So I went back and did science. You found your way back there. I did. There's another connection though. How did one of the commissions you were working on, one of the tapestries, mm-hmm. help introduce you to this great passion of, of shorebirds? Yes, that's quite a funny one. So we were working on an artwork uh, with John Wolseley uh, for Hamilton Art Gallery. So John is a really well-known Australian painter and his artwork often depicts uh, natural history subjects and uh, he'd been commissioned as well around that time to create a mural for the city of Melbourne and he invited the weavers at the workshop to come along to the unveiling and the mural, I think it is called uh, Wild Cries of Wetland and Swamp and it depicted uh, many species of shorebirds taking flight and it also had a map of the East Asian Australasian flyway on it and uh, a few graphs of some of the species and showed that they were in decline. And uh, I was studying part-time and weaving part-time when this happened and uh, some of the Victorian Way to Studies group people were at this unveiling as well and I met them and I was just amazed that I'd been living in Gippsland most of my life. You know, Western Port Bay was in my backyard and I'd never even heard of these birds, let alone these amazing flights they do from Australia to the Arctic and back. So I was equally heartbroken to learn at the same time that uh, many of them are on the brink of extinction. So I uh, joined the Victorian Way to Studies group 
So waders and shorebirds, are they different terms for the same thing? Yes, they're interchangeable. Yep, interchangeable terms. And uh, yeah, so I joined the Victorian Wader Studies Group and began banding and flagging shorebirds around the coast. Are Mm. all shorebirds migratory? No. So there's about 50 species in Australia and 37 of them migrate to the Arctic. The other species are what we call resident shorebirds and they live and breed in Australia year round. So most people would be familiar with uh, the mast lapwing or more commonly known as the plover, <laughs> you know, sweeping them at the footy oval yes. or on the nature strip. That's an example of a resident shorebird. You mentioned in this this mural that kind of fired up your passion for shorebirds that part of it was depicting the East Asian Australian flyway. That's right. What, what is that? So there's eight global flyways in the world and a flyway is a bird migration highway. And our flyway, the East Asian Australasian flyway, is the largest and it has the most bird species and the most number of individual birds too. Uh, about six million waders use that route every year. And when you say this route, it's not like there's actually a highway tracked no. out in the sky, but all these no. different species, what follow the same wind currents or the same mm-hmm. geographical locations, do they? Yeah, that's right. So it, there's 23 countries in our flyway and uh, the birds will fly from Australia and stop at wetlands on the way to rest and refuel. So it extends all the way from Australia up to uh, Siberia and Russia and also across to Alaska. And uh, a lot of those uh, Asian countries are included in that. So Japan, China, Mongolia, you know, Indonesia, Vietnam, Laos, all those places in between. Amazing. And what do they make these epic journeys for, shorebirds? Mm-hmm. Yes. So shorebirds have evolved to exploit uh, energy-rich resources in both areas. So in Australia, there's a lot of food. These birds eat uh, invertebrates, marine invertebrates primarily that are buried in the sand and the mud. And uh, they're exploiting that resource when they're here in our summertime. So between September through to about March. And then up in the Arctic, there's uh, an abundance of food for their chicks when they hatch. So when all the snow and the ice melts in the Arctic summer, you get big blooms of mosquitoes. And uh, one of the things that makes a shorebird a shorebird, different to seabirds, is that when they're young hatch, they can run around and feed themselves. They already have feathers. That's what we call precocial. So there's plenty of mozzies for them to eat. And there's also plenty of area to nest on the ground. It's light 24 hours a day. And uh, there's very few predators up there. All of those things combined uh, is why why they've evolved to mig- do those big migrations. And how do they know how to get there? <laughs> yeah, well, that's one of the big mysteries of shorebird migration because when these birds are just eight weeks old, they will do their first ever migration. Eight un- weeks? Eight weeks, yeah. So unaided as well without their parents. So when they're six weeks old, the parents leave the Arctic and fly back without them and and they'll stay a bit longer out there before they do their first migration. So that's one of the mysteries. We don't know. It just seems to be programmed into them. They fly with other birds of their their own age, do they? Yes, they come back in flocks generally. And when they're up in the air, are they gliding as they fly on on the air currents? No. So that's another thing that's incredible about shorebirds is that they're not gliding on thermals like pelicans and ibis and things. They flap their wings 
the entire way. So they're extreme in every sense of the word. How do they have enough energy to mm. do that? Are they, they landing and, and refueling as they go? Yep. So uh, as I mentioned before, they eat a lot of marine invertebrates and they really take binge eating to the next level. So they'll get very fat and uh, they can even uh, reduce the size of their their gut to make more room for fat. They reduce the size of their leg muscles as well, anything that they're not using for flight. And uh, they put all these extra fat stores on. And some of them will be 50% fat when they take off. Which that was you or I would be, be considered... hard to take off. Well, we'd be considered clinically obese, you know. So I heard someone say one time they're combining obesity and athleticism <laughs> to do these flights, which I think is a great description of what they do. And uh, they are also able to increase the size of their heart muscle to pump more oxygen-rich blood around the body. And uh, their chest muscle gets bigger as well to cope with the long distance flapping of wings. And which species has been discovered or, or tracked so far to have travelled the furthest mm-hmm. without stopping? Yeah, so that's the Bartel Godwit. They hold the world record for the longest non-stop flight. And the first Bartel Godwit to break that record, she's very famous. Her name is E7. So, <laughs> Such a beautiful name. I know, it's so a beautiful name. <laughs> so E7, she was fitted with a little satellite tracker by scientists in New Zealand back in 2007. And uh, she flew from Australia direct to the Yellow Sea in China. I think that was 10,500 kilometres and everyone thought that was impressive. Then she flew direct to uh, Alaska, another six and a half thousand kilometres. But what blew everybody away was uh, once she'd finished breeding, she flew direct from Alaska back to New Zealand over the Pacific Ocean. So that was 12,000 kilometres and uh, she did it in just nine days. Nine days of non-stop flying. Nine Day, days. night, no rest. That's right. So they don't sleep? What these birds can do is uh, take micro naps on the wing so they can shut part of their brain down at a time and, uh, yeah, have a micro-sleep while they're flying. That is just extraordinary. And mm. how often in their lifetime uh, is a species like that making that kind of epic journey? Yes, they do it every year. And they'll spend the first two years of their life down here in the southern part of the flyway in either Australia or New Zealand. But once they turn two, they'll begin going back to the Arctic to breed every year. Another bird that has won your heart, Millie, is the <laughs> red-necked stint. What's yes. special about it? Oh, well, you mentioned in your intro it only weighs as much as a Tim Tam. That's true. So they're the smallest shorebird species in our flyway and they're so adorable. They're very tiny. And, you know, these little birds, they fly up to 5,000 kilometres in one go and they do it in just a few days. So I just find that phenomenal that these tiny little birds can do such epic migrations. And, you know, we have records of shorebirds that are over 30. So they live a long time. Over 30? That is long. Yeah, it's a really long time. So it means that by the time a shorebird's about 18 years old, they will have flown a distance equal to flying from Earth all the way to the moon just by migrating. And 
it blows me away to think that a tiny little redneck stint the size of a Tim Tam is going to fly 384,000 kilometres in its lifetime. There's something sort of incredibly moving about it, isn't it? It sort, yeah. of, it sort of breaks your heart in some way to think of that. Yes, well, these birds are so vulnerable, you know. They're these tiny little birds doing these huge migrations and as you've just heard from... Um, in talking about their behavioural ecology, you know, they're extreme in every sense of the word. And they're not, though, they're not um, they're not showy. I mean, when mm. you understand, as you do, and, and the way that you're describing their feet, so I'm blown away, but I'm mm-hmm. sure just to see one of those birds on a shore, I've probably seen them and they haven't really struck me as being particularly interesting looking. That's there's, right. there's some disconnect, isn't there, between what they're capable of and what they look like? Yes, exactly. So when the birds are here in Australia, uh, they are mostly brown and grey and white and they're quite camouflaged. If you see them on the beach or at a wetland, they they don't stick out by any means. And uh, we call that their non-breeding plumage. They actually change colour before they migrate and they'll start to go streaky or they'll get beautiful brick red uh, plumage, that sort of thing. But when they hear them, yeah, they look quite... uh, nondescript sort of little birds on the beach and they can be quite sensitive to disturbance as well. So people probably don't even notice them and if they do, uh, don't realise that they are about to fly to Siberia (laughs) (laughs) or or anything like that. So, you know, most birds you see at the beach or people associate birds at the beach with things like seagulls or terns and stuff like that, not with a bird that's flying 25,000 kilometres a year. Millie, you're in the middle of your own somewhat epic migration. Yes. When or how did you come up with this idea to fly around Australia as Mm -hmm. as a way of honouring shorebirds and your understanding of them? So I'd been uh, volunteering with different shorebird groups in Australia, banding and flagging shorebirds around the coast. And uh, what I really loved about being part of that community is how the shorebird migration brought people together from all around the world. And we were all working towards this common goal of protecting the birds and their habitat. You mean because the one bird will travel to many different countries? That's right. Is that how you're feeling connected to other people? Yes, absolutely. So you have people from countries all through our flyway come uh, visit us in Australia and help us band and flag shorebirds around 80 Mile Beach and Roebuck Bay and things like that in Broome. And uh, what kept coming up? For me, though, was I could see it was very difficult for people to get the word out about shorebirds. Not many people have heard about shorebirds, let alone know about their epic migrations. And uh, we were sort of talking within our own groups all the time, talking to birdos or scientists who already knew about them all the time, and it's really difficult to get the attention of people outside of that. So that was really the question that I was asking myself, you know, how do we get people's attention And uh, when I finished my uh, master's at uni in Melbourne, I got a job at the University of WA in Perth. So I moved to Perth in 2014 and uh, one of my colleagues there was telling me how his brother flew a microlight and that it was pretty easy to learn and didn't cost very much to get your pilot licence. And something about that must have stuck in my head because the next day I was driving to work and I just had this idea pop in my head out of the blue that I could learn to fly a microlight and follow the shorebirds on migration to Siberia. (laughs) (laughs) And um, the idea just struck me dumb. I just went quiet because I went, oh my gosh, I could actually do that if I decide to. And uh, I didn't tell anyone about it for a long time. 
or do anything about it for months. I just sat on it. And then what changed? What changed? Uh, Well, I didn't have any interest in being a pilot prior to that moment. So I didn't even know if I liked flying. So I thought, well, I'll just go and see if I like flying a microlight. And I uh, booked a trial instructional flight out at uh, Sky Sports Flying School in York, which is about 200 k's east of Perth. It's in the wheat belt. And I went up for a flight with um, my instructor, Gordon, Gordon Marshall, and uh, I loved it. I just thought it was the best thing ever. And I got the flying bug really hard. Yeah. What is a micro-light aircraft mm. look like oh. for someone who's, who's never seen one? Yes, it's a powered hang glider. So it's a hang glider wing with a three-wheel trike base hanging underneath it. We sometimes call them trikes for short because it's a bit like a flying motorbike in the sky (laughs) and it's an open cockpit aircraft. So the one that I learned in didn't have what we call a pod around the cockpit. It was just open like a bicycle in the sky. Do you feel very exposed? Uh, Mostly feel cold. (laughs) (laughs) I, I really like being up there in the open. You have a sense of being, you feel like you're in the air, you know what I mean? You feel like you're suspended in the air in the same way like if you're floating in the ocean, you feel suspended in the water. And I like uh, the way I describe it to people because I fly fixed-wing aircraft as well, I fly both. It's uh, the difference between riding a bike and driving a car, you know? So the microlights, physical aircraft, it's a, what we call a weight shift aircraft. So the trike base hanging under the wing is like a pendulum and I'm holding a control bar that's connected directly to the wing. So I physically have to push the wing left or right or forwards or back to steer. That's the physical aspect of it. Whereas if you're in a fixed wing aircraft, you know, it's like turning a steering wheel in a car. So it's quite different. Podcast, broadcast, and online. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Find out more about the Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. So you learnt to fly and you had this idea of a way to draw attention to migratory shorebirds. Mm -hmm. Where did you get a plane from? While I was doing my flight training at York, my instructor, he bought a gyrocopter and uh, he bought it from a company called Airborne Australia in Newcastle. And uh, Russell Duncan, one of the directors from there, came over to help Gordon put the gyro together and, and I got to help do that too. It was really fun. And uh, Gordon suggested to Russell that I go and do some work experience because he told him about my plan to fly to Siberia. And uh, Russell said yes. So I went over to Airborne in September of 2017 and I did some flight training with his son Rory. I I told 
Rory and Russell that I wanted to learn to fly in turbulence, which was a that was a bad idea. Um, I think well, Russell told Rory to put me through my paces. He took me up in some really rough air. And how do you handle a microlight when you've just described that you're pushing this mm-hmm. this bar to turn from from left to right? What happens when it's full of wind up there? Um, the technique is to hold your elbows in against your ribs and you brace. So you hold onto the wing and you brace and you try not to let that wing get too far away from you. Uh, so you build up good shoulder muscles. <laughs> so if the wing gets lifted up, for example, because you're going into a thermal and the air is rising, you know, you counter it, you pull the bar in to counter against that. And same if you go into sink once you come out of a thermal and the nose of the wing gets pushed down, you push the bar a bit forward. So you're constantly feeling what the control frame is doing and you learn that body memory and how to respond to the opposite of whatever the wing does. Sometimes though, you know, when you're flying in thousand foot a minute thermals, like I was with Rory that day and I have done on my own since a few times, uh, it's scary. It can be quite scary and it's a, a good workout as well. I, after I landed with Rory that day, we went and did circuits for an hour and a half in these rough thermic conditions. He said, oh, you did really well. Most trike pilots wouldn't fly in that. <laughs> Thanks, Rory. <laughs> Thanks for that. So you went yeah. over to where these aircraft are being built and yes. I guess the obvious thing would have been to ask them to build you one. Well, I did run a crowdfunding campaign and I had about $18,500 to do that. To get a new aircraft, I needed to raise about seventy, eighty thousand. 80000 And uh, after I did the work experience in the factory and flying with Rory, uh, Airborne agreed to sponsor me so I could get my hours up and also have some time to get some extra money together to get my own aircraft. So I actually quit my job at UWA and I sold all my belongings and I moved to Newcastle to really give this project a red hot go. Uh, I didn't build it by myself, but I did get to help with the assembly of the aircraft. And what's involved in that, Mm. Millie? Uh, Well, it's a bit like following a Lego diagram. So they used to make all the parts in the factory themselves and you'd have a diagram, a CAD diagram, and it told you gave you a list of parts that you needed. So you'd go pick all the parts and then you... From would, the Lego room, you'd go right, and get your bits. The Lego. <laughs> it was a bit like that. It was really fun. I loved it. And then you'd get the tools you needed and you'd assemble the bits and put them together. And the boys would show me what I needed to do and they'd check over my work and make sure I'd done it properly. And yeah, it was so great. I loved it. And once it was completed and it was yours, did, did you name it? Oh, I call, call my aircraft Little Bird. She's my little bird. <laughs> Makes sense. And yeah. how easy is it to transport when you're when you're on land? How do you mm-hmm. get it around with you? It is a hang glider wing, so you can take the wing off the mast of the trike base and fold it up like a hang glider wing. And that can go on the roof rack of your car. And then the base goes in a trailer so you can tow the aircraft around and take it different places. And you talked about flying in those big winds. I guess you've become a bit of an expert at reading the weather, have you? Yes, you have to be really good at reading the weather. So uh, the microlight for wind conditions, you, I think the limit, maximum limit recommended in the ops manual is uh, 15 knots if it's straight down the strip and 10 knot crosswind. So above that, you know, it does start to get challenging to put it on the ground. Uh, the conditions I was mentioning before, it's not wind, it's thermal activity. So when the ground heats up, you know, you get the hot air rising and that can make it 
quite turbulent because you've got that hot and cold air mixing. So uh, you tend to fly early in the day before the thermals begin or late in the day after they've finished. And how far can you fly at one stretch mm-hmm. before you need to land and refuel like a little shorebird? Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Uh, the fuel tank is 55 litres and it just runs on premium unleaded like your car. And uh, I calculate endurance at 10 litres per hour. So I can get about five hours out of it. But actually, like when I'm at cruise, I cruise at about 55, 60 knots, which is a bit a bit over 100 k's an hour. I'm often only using five or six litres an hour at cruise. And where do you land and take off from? So there's small airports all around Australia. Uh, many people aren't even aware of them. So yeah, there's little airports all around the place. Uh, I do have a transponder and I have a controlled airspace endorsement as well. So I have been flying through controlled airspace up the east coast as I well. I liked the idea of you landing and taking off from sort of shorelines or, or <laughs> yeah, cricket it pitches. Work that way. I get asked that all the time, you know, can you come land on our footy oval at the school? And I have to unfortunate Fortunately point not. people, yeah. So you began sensibly, Millie, with a bit of a recce trip on the east coast. How did things go? Oh, that was a terrible year. So I had this, you know, the start of 2018, you know, getting my own aircraft and all of that. It was real high you know my dreams coming true and I thought before I do this flight around Australia I'll do a recce trip and drive the aircraft from one place to the next and get flying experience and we had a few fundraising events lined up too on the way and uh, the first stop after we left Newcastle uh, was Caboolture and uh, we arrived at Caboolture and I set up the microlight with my friend Neil Schaefer who's another trike pilot and uh, we were going to go flying and I said, I'll just shift the trailer. And uh, I didn't realise that the jockey wheel on the trailer wasn't latched in and it collapsed and the hitch of the trailer fell on my leg and cracked my tibia. Oh! So three days in, zero flying, one broken leg. <laughs> what did that mean? Did you just go home? Well, I can be quite stubborn, as you can probably imagine. And uh, I, my mate Phil was travelling with me. He was um, driving and uh, I said, look, we've still got fundraising events in Broome and Darwin and places, so let's keep going. So uh, we kept driving. He drove. I sat in the back seat on the passenger side with the passenger seat folded down so I could have my leg up on the <laughs> chair. And that was, it had a full leg cast. And um, yeah, we got to these other fundraising things and they turned out to be a big flop. We ended up just breaking even. So when we got back around to Perth, We stayed at his house for a bit and uh, I said, look, let's just stay here and recoup. I'll recover from this leg. And then uh, one morning I was getting ready to go for coffee with friends and I was getting my crutches in the bathroom and I slipped and I um, didn't want my leg to bang on the ground. So, you know, you know, you have those... Uh, comical moments that split second I could see both legs up in the air in front of my face and I didn't want to bang my leg on the ground so I put my hand down to brace my fall and and yeah I broke my wrist I uh, Millie (laughs) so broken leg broken wrist wrist. no cash yeah that's right so I felt like all my dreams were falling apart around me did you think about giving up I did at that stage I said oh I just feel like the universe is trying to tell me it's not the right time. So I decided to postpone and um, I'm glad I did because uh, a week after that, 
uh, my flying instructor, Gordon, he passed away as well. So that was really hard because he'd become a, a close friend and a mentor. That was really rough. A really tough year. It was a very tough year, yep. I ended up deciding to go back to Newcastle and uh, I thought I'd do the flight in 2020, but obviously that didn't happen. And um, while I was in Newcastle, I did a, a presentation at the Australian Ornithological Conference and Syro Publishing gave me a children's book deal. So COVID ended up giving me the time to illustrate the book. After you managed to recoup and, and your bones healed and you decided that you were going to to try to do this thing that had popped into your head yes. a few years before, mm-hmm. you chose WA as the starting point. Why? Yeah, that's right. Well, obviously it's got sentimental value for me uh, starting at White Gum Farm because that's where I learned to fly and the whole wing threads journey began there. What direction did you fly in from from there? So I, I chose to go anti-clockwise around the country because of the prevailing winds. So across the Nullarbor, prevailing winds are from the west to the east, so I'd have a tailwind. And same across the north, the prevailing winds are from the east to the west. And do you have a good view of what's below you? Oh, my goodness, yes. That's one of the things I love about the microlight more than anything is you can see the ground beneath you. You've got such good visibility. And I've actually met other pilots who say they wouldn't go up in a microlight because they can see the ground beneath them. They actually don't (laughs) like that. I've even had one pilot tell me she's scared of heights. I'm like, that's really weird. <laughs> so she prefers to fly a plane that, you know, you can just see over the dash. And... So what sort of things have you seen from up in your little trike? Oh, the landscape in Australia is just phenomenal. Uh, what I love most is uh, seeing how the the land changes as you travel from one place to another. Flying across the Nullarbor was particularly special and uh, along the Bunda Cliffs there of the Great Australian Bight. Uh, that's really spectacular and, uh, oh, so, so beautiful. That whole South Australian coastline is so magical. I think it's really underrated. <laughs> and what animals' migration were you able to see from mm. from the air? Uh, it was whale migration season when I began this flight. I started in the winter, so it was really cold. And uh, there were a lot of uh, humpback whales and southern right whales. And I even saw a southern right whale that had a white calf, which was really amazing. Uh, the whale researchers in Albany that I met were telling me that's called grey morphism. And I think 5% of southern right whales have white calves. And as they get older, they get darker in colour. So that was a really special thing to see. And how many whales would you see at once? Like from the shore, you might be lucky you see one or two spumes heading out of the ocean, but how many could you see looking down? Oh, so many. So when I got to the head of the bite, there would have been 50 or 60 whales there with their calves easily. It was like whale soup. It was incredible. <laughs> whale soup. Whale soup, yeah. <laughs> and even like around Chains Beach there in WA in Bremer Bay, uh, yeah, you'd see whales, you know, every... 100 metres or so, just dotted along the coastline. And what were you wearing when you say you're cold oh, and it's God. winter? What, what, do you, what do you put on before you go up in the air? Many layers. I had, um, I was taking off there because, you know, sometimes it was only three or four degrees on the ground when I took off because I had early morning starts. And uh, I had, you know, I'd have a singlet and my thermals and then I had a jumper and a heated vest on and I had my puffer jacket plus the flying suit. 
and a neck warmer and then I had two pairs of gloves and then I'd wear two pairs of socks in my Ugg boots <laughs> and I also had um, those little pocket hand warmers that you snap. I'd put them in my gloves to keep my hands warm because it's actually a safety issue staying warm because if your feet or your hands go numb, you can't actually feel the controls. So it's really important to stay warm. And then did you have to start stripping off bit air? Yeah. As, as oh, not bit air. Once you're up in the, when you're up in the air, you know, because you do have that airflow, you stay pretty cool. But once you get back on the ground, yeah, the layers all come <laughs> off. And, and, and can you eat and drink up there? I have a, a camelback under my seat so I can have a drink while I'm flying. The kids ask me, when I visit schools, the kids ask me, can you eat on the plane? Is there food on the plane? <laughs> Little hostess bringing yeah, you a tray. Right. I know, it's really funny. <laughs> that's, one of the, that's one of the top ten <laughs> questions I get asked. Uh, yes, I, I could if I wanted to, but one thing about the microlight is uh, being an open cockpit aircraft, you do have to be mindful of uh, things that are loose because if you drop something, it can go through the propeller behind you and then you're going to have a bad day. So everything very secure. And uh, you've got the wind blowing everywhere, so you could lose a muesli bar or whatever if you had it in your hand. Yeah. Of course, it's birds that have inspired you to embark on this journey. Have yeah. you seen shorebirds? Not shorebirds while I'm flying. I mean, I've seen them on the ground underneath me when I've flown over different wetlands. You can pick them just by the way they fly in a big flock. And, you know, when all the birds are moving together, they do that shimmery wing thing that looks like a school of fish in the water, the way it glints. So you can pick shorebirds on the ground. But uh, I haven't had them up next to me in the plane. I have had... uh, I took off at Maitland one time when I was flying around Lake Macquarie and... uh, I had two pelicans right beside me in the aircraft. They were huge and I was just like, whoa, pelicans. <laughs> and um, I'm like, you know, frothing over these pelicans. <laughs> and they just looked at me, like gave me the side eye, like, mm, I don't like this and just peeled off to the right. They were <laughs> so <laughs> not impressed with me. <laughs> and what else? What other birds have you encountered on this trip? Yeah, you see mostly raptors up there. So raptors also thermal. So you see them in the same sort of conditions that I'd want to fly in. And um, I have had a wedgetail eagle come up right beside me when I was on my way to Esperance. And, uh, what, checking you out? Checking me out, yeah. Came up next to me and was checking me out, which is so impressive. Like, this bird must have been doing, you know, similar speed to me to be able to do that. It's pretty amazing. And... Uh, I was like, oh, wow, a wedgie. I got excited. And then I was like, oh, a wedgie. Because uh, I have friends who've been attacked in their aircraft by wedge-tailed what? eagles. Yeah. What? Like the aircraft attacked or mm-hmm. they, they attacked? Aircraft attacked. So my friend John Welsh in WA, uh, a wedge-tailed eagle attacked him in his glider and uh, came through the windscreen. It broke the windscreen and landed in his lap. <gasps> yeah, and he had to toss the bird out of the plane and do an emergency landing. Yeah. So did that, What? How, how did you have to try to avoid it or what happened with your encounter? Well, thankfully it didn't find me too exciting, so it just decided to leave me alone. <laughs> Does the plane make yeah. much noise, your little trike? Yeah, it's got a Rotax 912 four-stroke engine, it's about 80 horsepower, so yeah, it does make noise. And uh, I wear a helmet with uh, noise-cancelling headphones so that I can hear radio calls as I'm flying around. So what do, you, what do you think was going on for that eagle? It just was curious about what this creature was in the sky? Oh, wedgies are territorial. So, you know, if you're in their territory, they're going to come and check you out 
And uh, there's numerous hang glider pilots that have stories of having wedgies attack them and things like that. It's not uncommon at all. What is the most useful thing that our species can do, humans can do, when it comes to helping these extraordinary shorebirds? The major threat to migratory shorebirds here in Australia is a lack of awareness. That's what BirdLife Australia recognises as the number one threat. In what way? How does a lack of awareness Mm. affect these birds? Uh, If we don't even know they're there, then we're not thinking about the habitat they use or why that's important to them. So habitat loss is the reason that most, you know, a lot of these shorebirds are in decline. Uh, the wetlands they rely on in our East Asian Australasian flyway are like a chain with links in it. So we need to take care of every single one of those links in the chain for it to remain strong. And what happens is in Australia particularly it looks like this. You have a little bit of a wetland taken here and a little bit taken over there and then a few years pass and we take a little bit more of that wetland and over time you have this cumulative effect It's like a death by a thousand cuts. And uh, people don't understand why it's important to protect a swamp or a mudflat or a habitat that doesn't look particularly appealing because they don't, don't know those birds are there or the migrations that they're doing. The other part of it is uh, disturbance. So two things these birds need to do a lot of is eating and sleeping. And, uh, you know, if we have four-wheel drives on the beach or people recreating, and they don't know that they're sharing that space with these birds, then they're constantly being disturbed and using their energy that they built up to fly away instead of putting it towards doing these migratory flights. So we need people to know about the birds so that they can make better choices about sharing these areas with them and also understand the importance of protecting these habitats for the birds. So it's a simple equation, habitat equals birds take that habitat away, you get no birds. And we often hear, they'll just go somewhere else. They don't. They're already on the fringes of what's left. We're part of nature as well. We're not separate to it. These wetland ecosystems that the birds rely on, we rely on them for our health and well-being too. When you first got the idea to follow the migratory roots in this little micro-light aircraft of yours, the plan was to go all the way to Siberia. Yes. Is that still on your radar at the moment? I haven't decided yes or no at this stage because it's taken many long years to get to this point and that takes its toll on you emotionally and physically and uh, as rewarding as doing this project is, it's also very difficult. Millie, we often have adventurers on conversations or people who've climbed mountains or, you know, raced kites across deserts and and done these sort of extraordinary things. But I hope you don't uh, take offence at this, but you're almost, in the way you're describing these feats of yours, a little bit like one of these shorebirds. You're not showy about it. You're not, you're not pushing this uh, extraordinary feat that you're doing, but it is extraordinary. <laughs> it, it is an extraordinary thing that I'm doing. And, and I think that what I'm doing is extraordinary. That doesn't make me extraordinary person. And when you break the project down, it's doing lots of very ordinary things. You chunk it down. And I can remember early on in the project feeling quite overwhelmed by what I was uh, proposing for myself to do. And my instructor, Gordon, he said to me, can you fly a plane? I said, yes. And he said, can you fly it from A to B? And I said, yes. And he said, well, that's all you're doing. (laughs) 
You just need to focus on the flight that you're doing now. And that's the way I approach it. What's in front of me? What do I have to do now? And I mean, you start something like this. I had no idea how to put together a project like this. You just learn as you go. And uh, you start before you know how to do everything. I call it following the lights. So it's like walking into the dark and you just have two lights in front of you. So you go, okay, I can see that I need to learn how to fly a plane if I want to do something like this. Well, I'll do that. And then you figure out the next thing that you've got to do and it reveals itself to you as you go. So you just do that and things fall into place. I've learned they fall into place at the right time when they're meant to. Following the lights. Following the lights, yeah. Really, I've loved hearing about your story. <laughs> Thank you so much and good luck on your journey. Thanks so much, Sarah. My guest on Conversations today was Millie Formby. Millie's project is called Wing Threads and we'll link to that at the Conversations website. And that's also where you can find more information about Millie's children's book, A Shorebird Flying Adventure and see some really amazing photos of Millie up in her little micro-light aircraft and the kind of things that she can see from the sky as she's flying around the country. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. If you like conversations about big stuff, it doesn't get much bigger than parenting. I'm Maggie Dent, author, parenting educator and the queen of common sense parenting. You may have heard me on Conversations before. A few times. But did you know I have an ABC podcast? Actually, it's an award-winning podcast. It's called Parental as Anything. We tackle those big parenting problems straight on, the big ones and the small ones, while giving lots of practical tips and common sense solutions along the way. So if you have tweens, teens, grandchildren or little ones of your own, let me help you be the parent you really want to be. Well, at least some of the time. Find Parental as Anything in the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.